And what I found was a remarkable story, which spans from choir boy to James Bond and everything in between. But amongst the gangs that roved about Sheffield at that time were one of the generations of the Peaky Blinders, the famous Peaky Blinders. In 1934, he attended an international policing conference in Chicago, where he meets and gets on very well with a man called J. Edgar Hoover. Strathclyde police always had a special relationship with the FBI. And I could never figure out why that was, but I know now. It was because of a personal friendship between Percy Silito and J. Edgar Hoover. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Simon. How are you? Great. Fantastic. Um, especially when I see all the questions coming in and the effect that Crime Time Inc. is having out there. Lots of feedback, very positive, none negative as yet. Uh, lots of people getting engaged, especially the episode we did on PTSD, Tom. I'm getting some really good feedback, not just from police officers, but from all sorts of professionals who have worked in, in jobs similar to the police emergency service. Uh, nursing, dealing with sexual crime, you name it, fire service as well. So it's something that we'll explore further in the future because I know it's something that you're very actively involved in as well. Yeah. Funnily enough, I've just today been at a meeting about that very subject when we spoke about the, this title of transition and well-being, which is the new sort of title. And what I was saying was that uh, people of my generation don't recognize that title. We're much more familiar with the title of welfare. And so I think if they change the title slightly, they'd get even more fruitful. And there's just a lot of interest now, but I think they'd get even more coming from people who are a wee bit older and not familiar with the new terms. I don't know. But I'll take your word for that because the new terms seem perfectly natural to, to my generation. That's right. You're so young. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Tom, today we're going to delve into the history of policing. And really look into a man who laid the foundations, the very foundations and principles of modern policing, as far as I can tell. A man not so well known, and I must confess, I wasn't aware of much of what I've learned from you uh, over the last few months, but certainly not as well known as he deserves to be. And in order to correct that, to some degree, I'm going to let you introduce the story of his life, if you like, as it relates to policing. Before you do that, Tom, I know that you've got a great interest in this. Where did that come from? How did you first get, get interested in this character who I've not even named yet? Okay, I first heard about Percy Silito many years ago. Percy Silito was one of your, if not your, greatest chief constables in Glasgow, Simon. And the way that you worked and some of the structures and systems that were in place when you joined, and all throughout your service, were as a direct result of Percy Silito. He's been misplaced by history. He hasn't been forgotten, but he's been remembered for the wrong things. Or, not the wrong things, but he hasn't been given sufficient credit, in my view, and I became interested in him. Where did I find him? I knew about him because he was the man who's credited with inventing the black and white checkered hat band, worn throughout the world now by police services. But I only really found out about him when I was researching for the book I wrote on the Ruxton murders, Ruxton, the first modern murder. And I found him there because I found that he, behind the scenes, 
He was instrumental in a lot of the modern scientific techniques that came to the fore during that criminal investigation. So once I found out that, I started to look at him more closely. And what I found was a remarkable story, which spans from choir boy to James Bond and everything in between. You could not make this man up. If you wrote this character in fiction, it would have been thought to be so improbable has to be laughable. So it, it fills the criteria, Tom, that you told me way, way back that who needs fiction? Because truth is very often much more incredible and shocking and fascinating, shall I? I will let our listeners be the judge of that. But I believe that the life and times of Percy Sillito are a very good example of just that. Okay, Tom, what, so what time period are we talking? Let's take him back to where was he born and when was he born and how did he become a policeman? Percy Solito was born in 1888 in London in fairly straitened circumstances. And at that time, of course, the only way to get an education, there was no state education system worth the name. And because of that, and because his parents couldn't afford to send him to a school, but recognised that one way to get an education was for the young Percy to become a choir boy. Now, it's very odd in this modern times because you don't associate becoming a choir boy with, with any kind of remuneration. In these days, when there were churches and cathedrals, much more so than there are now, actually choir boys were well looked after. And young Percy, as a wee lad, about eight years old, got taken on by St. Paul's Cathedral, no less, as a choir boy. And one of the first things he remembered was actually singing at the commemorative service for the death of Queen Victoria uh, when he was about 11 years old. One of the great advantages of being a choir boy at St. Paul's Cathedral is you got an excellent education. You did more than sing. You got an excellent education. But... Of course, as soon as your voice broke, as soon as you became a teenager, then you were out. You were finished because they only wanted boy choristers. They didn't want anybody with a mature voice. So Percy Silito starts off and he's a choir boy at St. Paul's Cathedral in his teenage years when eventually his voice is broken. But by that time, he's well-educated, particularly in geography. And he decides that if he's going to make his fortune, it's got to be Africa. And so he decides to join the British South African police. Now, at that time, the British South African police took in the whole of Southern Africa. What we would now know is uh, Zimbabwe, which in these days was Northern Rhodesia, and what we now know as the whole of Southern Africa. And reading his accounts and accounts of the time, it was like the Wild West. We're talking now about the early 1900s when there were very few policemen around and vast areas which were overrun by tribal gangs, criminal gangs who specialised in robbing and looting and murdering and raping anybody they could find particularly of a, an opposition or a, of a rival tribe. And so that was the melting pot that he was dropped into. Now, I know you had a tough time in your early days as Strathclyde, Simon, but let me tell you, I think in fairness, you couldn't compare it. I was in the Wild West as well, Tom, in Campbelltown. And I'll tell you what, see when it kicked off on a Saturday night? I don't know. I don't know if Percy could have handled it. 
Let me tell you about Percy Silito's first station. He was put in a station in northern Rhodesia, who was the only policeman there, and the only companion he had in the station was a pet leopard. Now, things may have been rough in Campbelltown, Simon, but I put it to you, that you've never just had a leopard as a mate. We had a cheetah, yes. We had a cheetah on the loose in Kintyre. So, yeah, don't you sniff at Campbelltown. And I'll tell you what, on a Saturday night when there was only four of us on duty, it was, we could have done with Percy and a few others there. So I remember old Sergeant Ian Mackay coming running down the street with his pyjamas on underneath his tunic and his truncheon in his hands. It was a wild west, but not great wild animals like that. When he was on his own, he clearly uh, proved to be a, a natural policeman because he thrived in that environment. And he very soon developed a system for dealing with the tribal gangs, and that was he managed to encourage and place informants. Now, later on, when we come to his later career, we'll see all of that learning coming in. Now, he was a mounted trooper, so the only place he could get anywhere was on a horse. And once again, as his career develops, we'll see him having a, a special regard and an understanding of the use of mounted police officers. So Percy's there, he's doing very well, and along comes the First World War. And by this time, he's got a few years' service, and his special interest and his ability in informants and intelligence gathering are recognised, and he's sent to Tanganyika as an intelligence officer working for the government. Now, this is right on the on the west coast of Africa, and there was a tremendous... We don't ever th hear about the First World War as it was fought in Africa because it was nothing like the Western Front, but there was a very violent and long-running battle in and about uh, East and West Africa between the Germans and uh, the British using various tribal factions to support them. So... He spends the First World War in Tanganyika, again, developing informants and running agents in the intelligence service. And this is where we see him, first of all, getting his foot in the door of British intelligence, MI6, as we would now know it. And later on, again, we catch up with Percy in his life. It becomes clear that he's got these connections. So he's there during the First World War. And at the end of the war, like many people, he tried to go back, but couldn't go back because time had moved on and he had moved on. And he decided it was time to come back to Britain, the mother country, and seek his fortune in policing in the UK. And at the end of the First World War, just like the Second World War, there was a mass exodus of police officers who had done war service, who had stayed longer than the retiral time. And there was a mass emptying. So Silito came back. He's only 30 years old by this time. He's only 30. He comes back, but he starts applying for chief constable's jobs. Now, this all sounds very glamorous, but remember that a lot of police forces, particularly in England, Wales, and in Scotland, had maybe had a couple of dozen men. So there were a lot of tiny forces, and there were a lot of jobs. And eventually, after one or two very small jobs, he ends up in the city of Sheffield, the old industrial city of Sheffield, famous, of course, for its industry and steelmaking. 
And when Silato lands in Sheffield, he finds it to be an absolute cesspit of organized crime, particularly gangs. And this is the first time we see him in the UK actually using his experience that he's gleaned in Africa on dealing with gangs, and he applies them over here as well. He gets a grip of Sheffield, small force, very small force. But amongst the gangs that roved about Sheffield at that time were one of the generations of the Peaky Blinders, the famous Peaky Blinders. Job, that's interesting. What it reminds me is a wee bit, maybe people can relate to this, in The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings, where the hobbits go away and have all these adventures all over Middle Earth and meet all sorts of horrors and then come back to, back to Hobbitland, Hobbiton. And there's some criminals causing a bit of bother that, that would be very intimidating to normal hobbits, but not to our hobbits who have been away in all these adventures. Cause it, and that's a wee bit like Percy coming from having a pet leopard in, in Africa and dealing with tribal warfare and coming back to Sheffield and finding that there's some Neds that are running the roost a wee bit. So you can see where the mentality came from. Yeah, he came back as a 30 years old, but pretty hard character. He developed systems for running intelligence systems. He was very adept at placing informants. What he'd done in Africa was he'd managed to get informants and put them back in as double informants back into the gangs they came from. And of course, as we know, an informant within a gang completely undermines the confidence of the whole structure. And so that's what he'd done in Africa. And that's what he set about doing in Sheffield. And as well as that, he decided that his men in Sheffield were unfit for the kind of arduous duties that they had to undertake. And so he set about a program of physical training, which he encapsulated as reasonable force. He wanted all his men to be capable of holding their own and exercising reasonable force. Now, when you read some of the stories of what happened, I don't know whether that would pass muster today as reasonable force. I think, I think what passed as reasonable force in Southern Africa at that time was probably what he imported into Sheffield. A slightly lower crossbar, but nonetheless, I get the drift. That's exactly what he did. He also formed, and I can't find any record of it before, he also formed what he called a flying squad. And the flying squad, his flying squad, which might strike memories of some of the flying squads we've known, his flying squad were a group of the toughest, largest cops he had in Sheffield. And if he found that any of the gangs were congregating in any area, then he would send in his flying squad to really enforce the law with, as he always kept emphasizing, reasonable force. So basically, by doing that and by developing intelligence systems, by turning informants against the gangs, he smashed them. The gangs were completely undermined and the leaders of the gangs were locked up for long terms of imprisonment and the whole gang structure fell apart. This was hugely important because in Sheffield, what was happening was that the gangs had actually started to infiltrate local government. So you didn't only have criminal enterprises, you actually had local authority corruption. And one of the biggest scams at that time was the, in betting on racecourses. And this is what the Peaky Blinders were really in, involved in. 
that's not what you see on the television program, but the real Peaky Blinders were basically a group of thugs who preyed on people on their race courses. And attending horse racing then was a mass spectator sport. Thousands of people would attend horse racing meetings, and there was all sorts of betting and gaming, both legal and illegal, which took place on these race courses. And what the Peaky Blinders did was offer protection. They were running a protection racket. But they also had infiltrated the local politics of that area. And so the fact that Solento had taken them on, the fact that he had beaten them and, and routed them, actually added tremendous kudos to his reputation. Within a very few short years, when he was only still in his 30s, Silito was a man with a reputation of a gangbuster. He was known as a gangbuster. And because of that, various forces actually tried to headhunt him and actually tried to bring him to their areas. Because in the aftermath of the First World War and into the 1930s, Gangs were a huge problem in most industrial cities. Let's just have a wee look at that then, because it flies in the face of modern police and a lot of what you're saying, although it's certainly instinctive for a lot of cops. And a lot of cops, including me, know that if you've got the resources that you're talking about, and Percy even got them training to be physically fit for this job. And I know you're using the reasonable force there, but we, can, we don't know where that crossbar was set. Basically, what we're talking about here then is that Percy put together big guys to fit, gave them the tools of the trade and the vehicles or, or whatever the mode of transport might be, and coupled along with the, the infiltration of these gangs through information and intelligence, and went out and battered them, went out and beat them at their own game, went out and treated fire with fire, if you like. And it's the way we did it in Glasgow, even when I joined we had the remnants of that type of policing then because a lot of the policing methods that we inherited over the years and still do to this day, and you spoke about it right at the start of this, a lot of the methods we use today were passed down over the years from people at Percy Silito and ranks of cops over the years. So we had ex-soldiers, we had ex-military in the police at that point who still, some of them I don't know whether they could read or write very well, but they could police a street and a community in a pub, in a brawl. They had absolutely no qualms about getting involved physically in these things. In fact, we had a height restriction in the police, didn't we? Five foot, ten and a half or something like that. We had a, an expectation from the public that the local Bobby wouldn't bother locking you up. He would give you a good slap about the, the year and take you home by the collar and throw you in the house and there'd be no questions asked about it. So it was a different way of policing that Percy really clamped down on these criminals back then. Is there still a case for that type of policing, Tom? I think there is as a tactic, but not a strategy. I think it's like stop and search, Simon. Stop and search is a very good tactic if you want to bring a halt to a criminal trend. Now, when you come to keeping that criminal trend from reoccurring, then you need different tactics altogether. But this business about showing strength on the street, it still very much has a place. And it always will have. Funny enough, you're talking about that as, as late as the 1980s, when I was working out in West Lothian, there was a lot of wee single man stations there, or, or stations with three or four people. And in the rougher towns, there were some old documents, when I say old, from about 20 years before. PC so-and-so 
can hold the street. He can hold the street. And what that meant was that he was going to stand up for the uniform and for the force, and he wasn't going to be pushed around by people. And of course, this is one of the reasons why police forces in the lowlands of Scotland took on so many Highlanders back in the day, because they were big men. They were strong men. They had been used to physical labor, and so they were halfway to being good policemen even before they put the uniform on. And that was, the way, that was the way it was done. I can remember, maybe it was around about the 80s. Uh, I'm guessing now that, that thing, the mentality started to change and maybe we had different expectations of police officers. In fact, I'm absolutely sure that we now cover dozens and dozens of aspects of society that the police didn't deal with back then, uh, like mental health and, and all sorts of uh, drugs is another one all sorts of things that have proliferated and legislated for and been lumped on the police to deal with. So the portfolio of, of a police department now is much, much bigger than it was back then. But this, the funny story I was going to tell you was in Gia, just off the coast of Kintyre, there was a special constable. There wasn't any police in Gia, but there was a special constable. And he phoned up the office one night that I was lucky enough to answer the phone at Campbelltown, which was part of the subdivision. And he, he related a story to me that there was a young boy causing havoc on the island top. He had stolen a tractor or something or a car. He was drunk out of his mind. He had been rude to his mother and, and he had failed to pay the barbell or whatever it was, but he was running riot around the town. And the purpose of the call, because I said, but what is it you want? I wouldn't give his name, but he was quite a famous character, that special constable, because he had about 30 jobs in gear. I think he was on television about it once. But I said to him, what is it you want to know? And uh, there was two things. One, he wanted to know if he could lock this guy up because he would have to clear the cell out with all the lost property and cones and maybe a few sheep or whatever that were lying in there. And secondly, when he caught up with him, would it be all right if I punched him? <laughs> so he was, he was just wanting to knock him out, put him in the cell, keep an eye on him until he'd sobered up. And of course, reasonable force had to be raised. <laughs> what happened in gear that night, I shall never know, never want to know, and nobody ever heard anything about it. So it was all sorted. The, the, the other thing that Percy Silito did in Sheffield, though, and this is hugely important, it's all very well to train your men up and form flying squads and reasonable force, but you've also got to give them the reassurance that you're going to stand behind them. And that's what he did. He said, look, this is a job we've got to do. Don't worry, go out and apply the law with reasonable force. And he always used this reasonable force was his kind of, it could have been his nickname. It was reasonable force and I will support you. And he was, but this time with his experience in Africa, he'd grown in confidence. He was a big imposing man and he was a, a fairly formidable character. And a couple of times he was taken on by local politicians to question this doctrine of reasonable force. And he left him for dead just about what he was trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. So he didn't only give his men the tools and train them, he actually supported them too. And of course, as you and I both know, you when you're out there doing difficult jobs, you've got to be comfortable that the people back at HQ 
are going to back you up. Well, we'll certainly cover that subject again, Tom. When they were talking here, the early 30s, something like that. They we're talking about the late 20s. We're still talking about the late 20s. He's headhunted by various forces, but the force you come to call and say, look, we've got a serious problem here. You look to have all the talents to deal with that. Come and be the chief constable of Glasgow, the city of Glasgow police. Now, Glasgow is a bigger version of Sheffield, really, much bigger version of Sheffield. And it's an industrial city, shipbuilding, steel, and all of that stuff. But by the early 1930s, Glasgow had a huge problem. If you want to read about that, just read the novel No Mean City, yeah. which, which actually sets out quite well uh, some of the social difficulties that were with slum housing and all the rest of it. But running through Glasgow at that time were a number of enormous and very imposing and violent gangs. Some of them were sectarian gangs, like the Billy Boys, and others were territorial gangs who worked in various areas and almost had created no-go areas within parts of the old slum areas of Glasgow, particularly the Gorbals. Now, the old city of Glasgow police had, over the years before that, had fallen into a wee bit of dereliction. There was a lot of very old senior officers, way past, at that time there was no retirement point so they could work on until they were in their dotage. And a lot of the men in Glasgow had not been particularly well trained. And so when Silito arrives, he finds this mess. And again, the local politicians are really worried because they know that their own structures, the local government structures, have been infiltrated by these gangs who have got quite a lot of money, of course. He also finds that crime is running rampant, particularly housebreaking. Again, these gangs, they specialise not only in protection and not only in intimidation, but they also specialise in housebreaking or burglary, as our listeners out with Scotland would know it, on an industrial scale. This is the, the problem. Percy Silito inherits in the city of Glasgow. Tom, I can't help but see people say history repeats itself. And if you if you look back, you can see how the, the pendulum swings back and forward. But these gangs, as you describe them, they're pretty much the same as organized time is now. And something that we're going to cover very soon on our diverse Crime Time Inc. episodes that we're bringing out extra of in, in the near future is really to deal with that issue and lots of other issues that talk about the modern day. Because those gangs are currently undermining our institutions with corruption because of the drugs trade primarily that is so cash rich for them, that we've given them. They're in a position of power. They're in a position where they can afford to pay huge sums of money to get decisions made that would suit them. So there's a real reflection mm. there on what was going on with these gangs back then and what's going on now with what we call organized crime. We have all these different terms for things, but very often they're exactly the same phenomena, repeating itself because of mistakes that we make at a political level. It's interesting you say that because Percy Silito made it very clear to people in Sheffield and to the ruling politicians at Glasgow that policing could win a tactical battle against organized crime and gangs. But if you wanted to win the war, then the only way to do that was by social conditions. 
by better housing, by employment, by education and support for families. Silito, his reputation was as a gangbuster. And you think of some big tough guy and knocking people about. And to some extent, that's exactly what he did. But behind that was actually a very cold and a cool and calculating brain who knew the limits of what he could do and what he couldn't do. He recognized that way back in 1931. So he comes to Glasgow. Is that 1931 when he came to Glasgow? 1931, he arrives in Glasgow and inherits this problem. He straight away, the reason he took the job is because he tells the local police committee, the watch committee at that time, look, I'll take the job, but you've got to allow me to roll my sleeves up and do the job. I will not brook any political interference or messing about from you guys. If you're squeamish about it, I'm not your man. And such is his reputation that they say, Percy, Mr. Silito, come to Glasgow, please, because we're really worried about the structure of our city being undermined by these these criminal gangs. So Silito comes to Glasgow and he immediately sets to work. The first thing he does, interestingly, is he retires most of his senior police officers, okay? Most of his senior men, he says, thanks very much for your 55 years of service, but it's time you retired. And then he promotes young men to take their place. He gives young men the chance. So he brings forward people and says, are you up to the job? I'm going to test you. If you pass the test, your future is secure. If you don't pass the test, you're out. Very hard-edged. He gives young people, young officers, the chance. Sometimes he double promotes them. He takes them from sergeant and promotes them straight to lieutenant, which is the, the, which is the chief inspector equivalent. And he places them. The other thing he does is he realizes that the system of policing is archaic. And so he sells off dozens of old Victorian police stations, which have fallen into dilapidation and which are no longer in the right place to do the job. These are police stations built 100 years before, just on the formation of the City of Glasgow Police and built in the 1830s, 1840s. He sells them off. And remarkably, he manages to keep the cash. Now, this is a clever trick because the problem with selling police stations and any kinds of police estate is that very seldom does that money remain with the police service. It goes back to into the political port. But Silito's done a deal. He says, you want me to sort this out. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell these police stations and I'm going to keep the money. And with that money, he invests in modernizing the city of Glasgow Police. He introduces the police box system. He introduces radio cars for the first time ever in 1931. Was the police box system, Tom, was that a Glasgow thing? Was that a Glasgow initiative? No, not entirely. It came from down south. I think it was pioneered somewhere outside London first, but uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow and Edinburgh took on the system at that same time, in the 1930s. He starts to take on women officers, more than had been done before, putting them in specialist roles. He develops intelligence and recognising Glasgow at that time had quite a big mounted police section. And he recognises that they're more used than for football matches and ceremonial occasions. And he makes them into what became known as Silito's Cossacks. In other words, he turned them into a cavalry unit. So he sets about undermining the gangs exactly as he's done 
in Sheffield. He he recruits informants, he places informants, he develops intelligence, and he trains his men. He puts them into physical training to get them fit. Now, very cleverly, recognizing some of the criticism he'd had in Sheffield about toughening up his men, he actually got the newspapers, the daily record, he actually got the daily record to present boxing trophies to the police for annual competition. And he hired a Scottish welterweight boxing champion to teach his men to fight. And one of the things I'm very proud to have in my possession now is the daily record boxing trophy from the year 1934. And no, I didn't win it before you started. But of course, think about it. Very clever. Because what he's done, he's actually given ownership of this to the biggest newspaper in Scotland, who are not going to be likely to criticize him for So, yeah, very clever. So anyway, he does this. He forms flying squads. But he also, is there something else to him too? And that is that beneath all this gangbusting thing, he is a man who believes wholeheartedly in what he always described as scientific methods. And he fell in with a, a young forensic scientist in Sheffield when he was there and became convinced that this was the way to detect crime. And so what he does is he forms the Glasgow Fingerprint Bureau, which you and I both knew as the SCRO. And Percy Silito starts that up. And he brings from Sheffield a fingerprints expert called Bertie Hammond. Bertie Hammond's a sergeant in Sheffield. And Silito says, you come up and work for me and I'll make you a lieutenant, which is a double promotion. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to set up a fingerprint bureau. I want you to set up a recording system. I then want you to fingerprint any thieves that are caught by our men. And I want you to match the two together. Percy Silatoth thinks that the housebreakers of Glasgow are sloppy and that they leave marks all over the place. And he was right. Because in its first year of Hammond getting up and going with the with fingerprint bureau, the conviction rates for housebreaking in Glasgow shoot through the roof. And of course, these fellas are getting a knock on the door in the night. The two detectives come in the door and they arrest them. And they have no idea uh, why this is or what's going on. And so he catches them, he takes them, catches them cold, and the detection rate rises. Tom, a few things come to mind there. Scottish Criminal Records Office, incredible that he came up with that. But it's such a fundamental part of policing now. What about the legislation around that? What about the, the rights for us to take fingerprints and store fingerprints for convicted people? What about all of that? Did that have to catch up with Percy? Was Percy leading or the lawmakers at this point as well? Not really, because, of course, fingerprints had been known and had been developed from the 1890s. But the problem was it was seen as being a highly specialised business, which only really Scotland Yard and the Metropolitan Police could specialise in. And it was a long time. It was 1935 or so before an officer other than a Metropolitan Police officer could speak to the identification of fingerprint marks. So it wasn't that the it wasn't that fingerprints were unknown. It was just that the expertise in fingerprints had been kept by the Metropolitan Police as a kind of a specialism that only they were clever enough to do. And what 
Persisilito said was, no, this is not good enough. We've got to use fingerprints, and I'm going to invest in this fingerprint bureau and the expertise. And Bertie Hammond was one of the foremost exponents of fingerprints in the world at that time. And Hammond it was who, who built the Glasgow Fingerprints Bureau, which became the SCRO. Now, funnily enough, just about three or four months ago, I was speaking to an old colleague of mine who used to be in charge of the SCRO. And I said, do you know the name Bertie Hammond? He says, no. He said, never heard of it. Never heard of it. And I think that's absolutely shocking yeah. that in less than 100 years, this man who built that system is not in some way remembered and celebrated because he's an incredible guy. Yeah. So Pesciusolato sets about smashing the gangs in Glasgow and he uses novel techniques. In 1934, he attended an international policing conference in Chicago where he meets and gets on very well with a man called J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. And even up to the last moments of Strathclyde Police, when they were amalgamated in 2013, Strathclyde Police always had a special relationship with the FBI. And I could never figure out why that was, but I know now it was because of a personal friendship between Persia Silato and G. Edgar Hoover. Okay. And what Persia Silato from G. Edgar Hoover was that when you were dealing with organized crime, there was more than one way to crack a nut. And he takes a lesson from the downfall of Al Capone. You remember that Capone was a murderer and a racketeer and a gangster. But actually, eventually, he was convicted with, with tax evasion. And so you find when you read the records that one of the leading, one of the leaders of one of the major gangs is actually eventually arrested and convicted for being drunk in charge of a child under the Licensing Scotland Act of 1903. Percy's view was, get them in the jail, yeah. and then we'll sort it out, and use whatever facets of the law you can. And this guy covered his tracks. He was never personally involved, like many of our major drug dealers now. He never put hands on. He's never in any position where he could be compromised. But Silito learned from J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, and this guy's eventually arrested for being drunk in charge of a child. And of course, once he's off the street, all the dominoes start to fall. Yeah. So by this time, Percy Silito's reputation goes before him. He's all powerful and any attempt to restrain him or political, they, they all think Percy Silito is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that's when he really puts his big plan into operation. Because Percy Silito has plans not just for Glasgow, but for the whole of Scotland. He wants to modernise the policing of Scotland and more than anything else, he wants to spread the gospel of scientific methods. So he encourages chief constables and other major city forces like Edinburgh to not do the same as he's doing, but to develop complementary forensic science techniques. So, for instance, he persuades Edinburgh that Glasgow are doing fingerprints, so don't you bother doing fingerprints because we'll help you there. How about you doing crime scene photography? How about you doing crime scene management? 
how about you doing calligraphy, ballistics, and things like that? So he builds this network of complementary things throughout Scotland, making sure that nobody replicates what each other are doing, but at the same time driving the whole thing forward to scientific methods. He also has, at this time, a cadre of very experienced young officers who he has promoted very early on and who now fill the ranks of lieutenant and things like that. And he encourages them to apply for county policing jobs, small forces. And of course, because he's precious a little, he phones up these local areas and said, my man is interested in this your chief constable's job. He's an excellent guy. He's 35 years old, but he's a detective lieutenant. He's done this and that, the next thing. And he says, and by the way, he said, if ever he strikes trouble or if ever you need help, I am standing behind him and I will help you unreservedly. So these guys come with this golden guarantee that if any help is needed, then Persius Solito will send people from Glasgow to help. And that's exactly what happens. The other thing he does, interestingly, to do with forensic science, he recognizes that within the universities of Edinburgh and Glasgow and Aberdeen, the great universities, St. Andrews, the great universities of Scotland, there is a whole untapped reservoir of expertise that the police can use. And so he reaches out to the professors of forensic medicine, particularly in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and he makes friends with them and he encourages them to form into a kind of relationship with the Crown Office and the police so that if ever they have a need for such expertise, these people are on call. This is really the start of this collegiate approach towards forensic science. And Percy Silotto puts that in place. And in 1935, you see this coming into action with the finding of body parts down in the tiny Dumfrieshire town of Muffet. And this, of course, is the famous Ruxton murders. Persisilato sees his chance straight away. He immediately sends his assistant chief constable, a man called Warnock, very experienced policeman, very experienced detective, his top investigator, and the famous Bertie Hammond. On the day, he sends him down to Dumfrieshire to help out. And one of the reasons he does that so quickly is because the chief constable of Dumfrieshire is one of his boys, is one of his men. And as soon as the body parts are found, Silito gets the call and straight away he makes sure that the very best of assistance goes to Dumfrieshire. And furthermore, he phones up the professors of forensic medicine at Glasgow University, John Glaster, one of the most famous forensic scientists of the 20th century, and seeks his help. And he coordinates this tremendous effort to go and help tiny Dumfrieshire constabulary who've only got 70 men and have got no CID and have got no crime experience whatsoever. Silito makes sure they get everything they need to carry out a first-class criminal investigation, which they do. This is incredible. And over a breadth of disciplines, it's not just forensics, it's not just fingerprints, it's not just gang-busting, it's not just informants, intelligence. The uniform we haven't even mentioned yet, how we revolutionised. And the world copied what he brought in to Glasgow. 
we leave it there. We're on an knife edge really here at Crime Time Inc. because I think we've only just started to peel back uh, a layer of Percy Sirotto's achievements, which is incredible what he did and how he, and I know you're going to expand on how he modernised the police and not just the police, but policing uh, and how we, we thrive on that today. If you thought that the first part of Percy Sirotto's life was remarkable, then there's a lot more to come and you couldn't make it up. Next time on Crime Time Inc. And even now when I describe what he did to modern detectives, serving detectives now, they go, how did he do that? No, it's a true story which is stranger than fiction. In the 1970s, an old detective, an Edinburgh detective, died. And like many old detectives, he'd kept a box of papers in his loft about some of the cases he had been involved in. And it was many years later, in about the 90s, that his house was being cleared out for sale. His family were selling the house and they came across these papers and they recognised they were police documents and they thought we'd better hand it into a police station. It was handed into a police station. It lay in a drawer there for some years and eventually, about the turn of the millennium, 2000, 2001, two, it found his way to me. It was like a time capsule, Simon. It was like hearing the voices of the men. When I opened the file, that was the first time that file had been opened since 1935.